The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. We'll take your Bibles again back to the book of Acts. Acts in chapter 5. And we're going to read from verse number 32 all the way down to verse number 39. 32 down to verse 39. The word of God says, and we we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they, that's the Sanhedrin, were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel stood up, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean arose in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. Spiritual blindness is a terrible, sad situation. We look at somebody who has lost the use of their physical eyes and we lament that they can't see the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset. They can't see and, and understand the beauty of a flower. There's something majestic about looking at a beautiful rose or a lily and seeing all the exquisite colors. And we lament that somebody who is physically blind is unable to see such a thing. But there's something equally, if not more lamentable, more sad, more tragic than even physical blindness. And it's spiritual blindness. The inability or the unwillingness to see the glory and the beauty of who God is in the person of Christ and what he has done. A few weeks ago, we went through this very quickly, and and I saw Gamaliel in one light. I saw him as a deliverer that God had raised up to help set the the apostles free. And there is a sense in which that is true. But as I went back and I read it, something just gnawed away at me that there's something more about this man's life that deserves closer attention. What is it that just rattles me as I read this? And I began to look and I noticed a couple of things. I noticed he says in verse 35, take care what you're about to do with these men. And then in verse 38, he says, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. 
Why? Why does he say these things? What is it about this man that is, that is intriguing? There's something that's slippery. There's something that's kind of veiled about him that just makes me cautious about him. I needed some help, and so I did the, the obvious thing. I pulled out Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I listened to a sermon. Well, actually, I tried to listen to the sermon of his, but my, my audio player kept cutting out. And all I really got was the title and the first couple of things he said about it. And what he said was spiritual blindness. And I'm so glad I didn't hear the rest of the message because I would be so tempted to take Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon and just re-preach it because Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the best. And so I'm so glad I just got the title and that gave me some, some pushing in my thinking and I began to study and look. And I realized that indeed this man Gamaliel is a beautiful, not a beautiful, a tragic example of spiritual blindness. So we're going to work our way through. There is a little note sheet. It's that nice lavender color that you see there in your, in your bulletin. And it's, uh, there's a couple of outline points there and you can follow along if you like. So first of all, who is Gamaliel? Well, we can see in verse 34 that Gamaliel was held in high honor by all the people. And historians would tell us that Gamaliel was, in fact, a descendant of King David and a member of the royal family. He succeeded to the presidency of the Sanhedrin in A.D. 30 during Herod Agrippa's reign. He was a student and a graduate of a famous rabbi by the name of Hillel, who was a very liberal rabbi. And Gamaliel was one of the most distinguished doctors and teachers of the law at the beginning of the apostolic period. His great teaching maxim was this, to search the scriptures to ascertain their true importance. This man being a Pharisee, which we'll look at in a second, his whole life was devoted to the word of God. And when we realize, as we'll see in a second, that he was actually Saul, who became Paul. He was his teacher, his university professor. When Paul was writing his doctoral thesis, if they had those back then, well, Gamaliel would have been his supervisor and his instructor. He urged his followers and students to put themselves under approved teachers of God's word, which explains his and the Sanhedrin's great struggle with the apostles. They were teaching in Jesus' name, standing in the temple courts and out in the streets of Jerusalem. They were proclaiming in Christ's name, but they were not approved teachers by Gamaliel and the Sanhedrin. In verse 34, it also tells us that Gamaliel was a Pharisee. And historians tell us that the Jewish tradition traces the Pharisees all the way back to Ezra in the Old Testament, the 5th century B.C. The Pharisees came to the forefront of Israel's history during the Maccabean Revolt when the Greek cultural influence greatly threatened Judaism. A man who, one of the Greek rulers of the land, tried to sacrifice a pig on the high altar of the, of the temple in Jerusalem, and the priests got very upset about this. And the Maccabees, that's who they were, drove out the Romans. And for a very short period of time in that space of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, the Maccabees ruled and reigned in Jerusalem and Judea. But not all the Pharisees were bad. As you read the Gospels, you sort of hear all the discussions between Jesus and the Pharisees. And one of the things you want to take note of is the reasons why they had so many con, uh, conflicts 
between them is that the Pharisees and Jesus were very close in theological understanding, but the Pharisees were just a little bit off. And because of that little bit off, they constantly conflicted. But not all the Pharisees were bad. Nicodemus, you remember the story, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. He was a Pharisee, a member of the high court. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, if I remember correctly, he also was a Pharisee. They weren't all bad. But in general, the Pharisees were those who were separated themselves to absolute obedience to the law. They were greatly concerned with ritual purity, trying to apply all of the priests' purity rules to all the people of the Jews. They were scholars. Uh, it was common for Pharisees to memorize the first five, not chapters, not verses, but first five books of the Old Testament. They memorized it completely. They had a great grasp of those teachings. Not only that, they also memorized and had a great grasp of the tradition of the elders, which was called the Mishnah. And they could often say, well, you know, Rabbi Ben so-and-so in the such-and-such -such century said this and that about that verse. And they would argue back and forth on the tradition of the elders. In fact, they elevated the law of the tradition of the elders to equal with the written law of God. And so that's where a lot of the conflict with Jesus and the Pharisees came in. By the New Testament times, they're recognized as political leaders among the Jews. And this man named Gamaliel is one of the most respected doctors and teachers of the law. And he is a Pharisee. He's also a very influential member of the Sanhedrin. Notice in verse 34 and verse 39, they listened to Gamaliel and took his advice. You say, what's so striking about that? Well, for one thing, the Sadducees, which were the, a different uh, sect and different party among the Jews, were in complete opposition to the Pharisees, and they were the ones that were actually ruling in the Sanhedrin. So when, Fer when Gamaliel stands up to speak, it's kind of like the opposition in the house of the government house, whatever he is. He stands up to speak, and everybody kind of rumbles and mumbles. But when Gamaliel stood up, he was so respected that everybody listened to what he said. He was not a high priest. He was not a Levite. He was not a member of the Sadducees. He was not even a Herodian. But the influence of this man was so strong that when he rose to speak, all stopped to listen to him. In Acts 22 and verse 3, by Paul's own testimony, Gamaliel was his teacher prior to Paul's conversion. By Paul's words, he says he was educated in the strictest manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. That influence, that zeal, no doubt came from his teacher, Gamaliel. Given the time frame of his presidency in the Sanhedrin, given his status and location in Jerusalem, given his influence and role in the leadership of the nation, it is reasonable to assume that Gamaliel either had contact with or at the very least was fully aware of Jesus' person and ministry. He was certainly alive and present in Jerusalem during Jesus' life and ministry and most certainly during his trial and crucifixion. So surely if anyone could see the truth of Jesus, it would be Gamaliel, wouldn't it? I mean... Surely if anyone was going to be influential in getting the Sanhedrin to see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, surely it would be this man who understood and knew the law so well. 
Gamaliel was devoted to the law of God. He had an expertise in the scriptures that spoke and testified to Christ. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, but they speak of me. And Gamaliel was one who had memorized and learned and understood those scriptures so well. Surely he would be converted. He was a descendant of David, as we mentioned, and involved in the leadership of the Jews. He would have been devoted to finding the Messiah. They were looking for him. Surely Gamaliel could see in all those references to the Old Testament that clearly pointed to Christ. He could see that that was the one. This was the one. If anyone could see it by human ability, it would be Gamaliel. But from reading and studying the text, I have to conclude not only was Gamaliel not a believer, not even a secret believer like Nicodemus, Gamaliel was spiritually blinded to the truth of God in the person of Christ. What does it mean to be spiritually blinded? In the words of 1 Corinthians 2.14, a spiritually blind person is one who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to discern them because they are spiritually discerned. To be spiritually blind is to be unable and unwilling to receive divine revelation, the witness of the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures. So even though Gamaliel knew the Word of God, he did not know the God of the Word. He was spiritually blinded to the truth that was contained in the pages of Scripture. Well, how do we know that Gamaliel was spiritually blind? Well, don't take my word for it. Let's see it from the text itself. So secondly, let's look at the evidence of Gamaliel's spiritual blindness. As we already mentioned, he was a Pharisaic expert in the Old Testament law and writings. He had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament promises to Eve of a descendant to crush the serpent's head. He had a thorough knowledge of the sacrificial system the requirement of a blood sacrifice and an atonement offering. He was a Pharisaic expert with a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. He knew of the covenant promises to David of sons to sit on his royal throne forever. He knew of the promise given through the prophets of a suffering servant of the Lord who would suffer death remarkably similar. In fact, the prophecies were speaking of crucifixion. He knew of the Psalms, including Psalm 22, and it's very clear reference to death by crucifixion. Yet he was unable and unwilling to see that Jesus is the Christ because Gamaliel was spiritually blinded. He had heard the apostles witness to Christ. He'd seen the lame wham walking when they all gathered around. There he was standing, leaping and praising God. He had seen and heard of signs and wonders and miracles being done by God through the apostles. In chapter 5, verses 12 to 16, the people in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns and villages had all heard what was going on. They were coming in to see and discover more. They were laying the sick in the streets so that even if Peter's shadow fell on them as he walked by, they would be healed. Gamaliel seen and heard all of this. Gamaliel was spiritually blind. He was unable and unwilling to see that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the God-man and God's man at work. He was blinded. 
Most significantly, he stood in judgment of Jesus, deciding that he was no more and no better than a want-to-be Messiah like Thutis and Judas. Listen to his own words. Look at his own words in verse 36, 37, and 38. In verse 36, he describes Thutis as one who rose up and led some followers off in one direction. Thutis was killed and his followers were all dispersed and it came to nothing. In verse 37, he describes Judas the Galilean who also rose up and drew some people away. He died. His followers were all dispersed and it was all for nothing. In both examples, he summarily dismisses them as nothing. And then in verse 38, he draws a connection from them to Jesus and the apostles. And he says, so in the present case. And you could translate that likewise in the present case or similarly in the present case. And you can't miss the connection that he's making. Judas died, Judas died, and Jesus died. The Pharisees, the Jews, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they all refused to believe the witness of the Holy Spirit through the apostles that Jesus is alive. The answer is yes, Jesus was killed and crucified. He was nailed to a cross at the Sanhedrin's doing. But praise God, Jesus was also raised to life. That's what the apostles have been saying in verses 29, 30, and 31. He may have been dead for three short days and nights, but now he lives forever. The connection Gamaliel draws is this. Judas's followers dispersed, Judas' followers dispersed, and if we sit back and wait, then Jesus' followers will also be dispersed. Christ is nothing more nor any better than the other two. And when he makes that connection, he makes that summary analysis and statement to the Sanhedrin, he is literally standing in judgment on Christ and saying, it's nothing. Leave them alone. He died. Jesus is dead. The followers will soon be dispersed and all this will be nothing. And you've made all this mess and fuss and it'll all be for nothing. What's he trying to do? He's trying to keep the Sanhedrin from coming in and killing the apostles. It's interesting. He calls on the Sanhedrin in verse 38 to do, to keep away from these men and let them alone. And he's doing exactly what Jesus described the Pharisees as doing. Jesus speaking in Matthew 15, verse 14 said, leave them alone. Speaking of the Pharisees, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Jesus was saying that being spiritually blinded and following their own teaching, they will end up in a pit, not merely a physical pit, but ultimately the pit of hell. And spiritually blind Gamaliel is leading and guiding the blind Sanhedrin and telling them to stay away from these people. Gamaliel is calling them not to kill the apostles. Perhaps in his politically astute mind, he knew that such an event would only draw more attention to Christ. And by doing so, Gamaliel was calling the council to ignore and stay away from their teaching and witness to Christ. Every time the apostles stood before the Sanhedrin and they laid a charge of them, what did they do? They preached the gospel. That was their response. And Gamaliel is sitting there going, just keep away, stay away, leave them alone. Don't have anything to do with them. And in so doing, what Gamaliel was doing was 
forcing a separation between the Sanhedrin and the apostles and keeping the apostles from witnessing and speaking to the Sanhedrin about who Jesus is. Every time the apostles stood there, they proclaimed Christ and more of the council heard their witness. You look ahead in chapter 6 and a couple of verses there, you'll see that many of the priests were coming to faith in Christ. But intentionally or not, Gamaliel was leading them away from listening to the apostles' witnesses. Now, in all fairness, you can clearly see that God was using the spiritually blinded Gamaliel just the way he used the sinful Nebuchadnezzar. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar to come in and destroy the people, destroy the city, and take the people of Judah away into captivity. Why was he doing that? Because God raised him up as a disciplining hand to deal with the people of Israel. And so God raises up and uses Gamaliel to stay the hand of the killing intention of the Sanhedrin. But Gamaliel's words, which restrain the killing intent of the Sanhedrin, do not excuse him for his own blindness, his indifference, and his disregard of Jesus Christ. And so looking at that, I conclude that Gamaliel was indeed a spiritually blinded man. But why? Why was he so blind? I mean, if we stop and think about it and think, well, you know, if you have all the evidence, you can believe. If you have all the evidence, you can make that conclusion, right? Well, the answer is no. It's more than that. Gamaliel had the full Old Testament. He knew more of the Old Testament than pretty much everybody else standing and sitting there. And yet he was still spiritually blind. What causes men to be spiritually blind? So third point is the causes of spiritual blindness. The Bible says in John 3, 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Spiritual blindness happens because men commit wicked deeds, and spiritual blindness happens because men love the darkness that hides our spiritual deeds, our spiritual wickedness. The chief priest in the Sanhedrin who had wickedly plotted and paid for Jesus' betrayal was so afraid. Look at their charge in verse 28. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They knew what they had done was wrong and they were longing for it to be kept hidden. Spiritual blindness happens because we commit evil deeds and we love the darkness that hides it. In Matthew 23, verses 23 to 25, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides. I love the way Jesus talks. He didn't pull any punches back. He says it exactly the way it is. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Spiritual, sorry, spiritual blindness happens because of self-righteousness. 
the Sanhedrin, this group of men standing there, sitting there around the apostles and holding them in judgment. They've washed the outside of the cup. They've put on all their finery, all their robes. The high priest probably is wearing the ephod and wearing the crown and the mitre, and he probably carries the crook and all those bits and pieces, all the trappings of their religion. The outside of the cup is shining and glistening, but inside it's absolutely filthy. There's self-righteousness there. We and they believe that our own words and works are of such a righteous character that God will accept us on their merit alone. And so we're spiritually blinded by our own self-righteousness. Gamaliel and the Sanhedrin believe that their own legalistic adherence to the law and the traditions of the elders gained them a right standing with God. And it was self-righteousness. Paul said, In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, he said, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Fourthly, spiritual blindness happens because of unbelief. And so the God of the world blinds their eyes to keep them from seeing. They refuse to believe. They reject the words of the Holy Spirit through the apostles' mouths. And in their unbelief, the God of this world, speaking about the devil, Satan, comes in and puts his hands in front of their eyes and his hands over their ears to blind them and deafen them to hearing the words of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. They're spiritually blinded because the God of this age blinds them. Brothers and sisters, that's a chilling thought. Stop for a second. Sitting in this room and you've heard the gospel message over and over and over again. And every time you hear it, you push it away. I don't want having to do with that. Do you realize, my dear friend, every time you push the gospel a message away, the devil's hands over your eyes gets a little further in and a little further in. And pretty soon it's blinding you completely. Your own unbelief is contributing to your own blindness. It's like your unbelief is a a blindfold and you reach up and you tie it around your head every time you refuse the gospel. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know, I'm a young man. I got life to live. There is parties to be had. There's stuff to do. I got things to go and places to see, things to do. I'll believe in Jesus when it's later in life. And you put it off. I assure you, on the authority of Scripture, every time you put it off and tell yourself, I'll do it later, you get a little more blind and a little more blind. And as tragic and chilling as that, there is one more cause of spiritual blindness, and we'll see it next. In John 12, verses 37 to 40, it says, John's writing, he says, but though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the words of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. 
Brothers and sisters, listen. Spiritual blindness happens because God himself blinds the eyes and hardens the heart. There comes a day when God says, no more. Oh, that's a chilling thought. We think of hardened hearts. What do we think? Who do we think of usually? Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh who stood there with all of his royal finery and he watched one miracle, one plague after another. And you can see the erosion as he starts to make some concessions. But every time the plague or the miracle is backed off and things are restored to order, no, I will not let you go. I won't believe that God is more powerful and stronger than me. And you see the hardening of his heart. And there comes a moment in which God says, now I will harden his heart. And he will not believe. That doesn't sound like the God that we like to hear about, does it? We love the God that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he is the same God. We love the God who is glorious in his grace. His grace is unending and never ceasing. Is that true? No. There will come a day, brothers and sisters, when God will say no more. And Jesus, he's, he can almost see the sadness, the groaning in his heart as he realizes that God is now blinding their eyes because they will not see it. They will not bend. Gamaliel stands in front of the Sanhedrin and the, the apostles are put out for a time and he's speaking to them and he's saying basically, listen, Jesus is dead. He's no more trouble to us. They refuse to believe that he's really alive. They believe the apostles have come and stolen his body away. They believe it's all a lie. And despite all of his learning and all of his understanding and all of his grasp of scripture, he refuses to believe. The apostles' testimony, which is the words of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Peter says. Verse 32, this is so key. He says, we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Why were they so enraged? They were enraged at the idea that these uncultured, unwashed, tradey fishermen and tax collectors standing in front of them, telling them the spiritual elite of the whole nation that the God has filled us with his spirit, not you. They're enraged at the idea that they no longer speak for God. They're enraged at the idea that they're out of touch with God. But Peter's words are so powerful because they are so true. They have rejected the testimony of the Holy Spirit through these men. So to summarize it, spiritual blindness happens because men commit wicked deeds because men love the darkness which hides their wickedness, because men are self-righteous, because the devil blinds the eyes of those who refuse to believe. And finally, ultimately, God himself blinds the eyes of the unrepentant and those who have hardened their own hearts. That's probably the most unpopular message you could preach. But it's exactly where Gamaliel stands. So how then? I mean, the title of this message is Overcoming Spiritual Blindness. How is it possible? Is there good news of this? Yes, there is. There's great news. 
spiritual blindness can be overcome. It is a work of God working through Christ and through his disciples. The things of God, both the simple things and the deep things of God, are received and perceived by us, not so much by observation and inquiry, but by revelation and illumination of the Spirit of God. You ever open your Bible? And you read, and all of a sudden, wow, a verse just jumps off the page at you. And it has so much significance and meaning. And you're thinking, wow, I'm so smart. Well, I don't think that. Some of you might think that. I just figured out this great biblical truth. Ooh, this is so cool. Write it down. I'll write a paper on this. I'll get my name in print yet. You think you got it because you're smart? I know I didn't get it because I'm smart. And you probably agree with that, no problem. But listen, not one single Thing in this book as you open it and as you read it nothing that comes off this page comes off it because you've got an intellect that can discern it because you've got an understanding gained from a PhD or five PhDs that you can discern it it all comes by the word of God by the spirit of God taking the word of God and opening the eyes of your mind and your heart to understand it why didn't Gamaliel see it Because he was blind. Because God hadn't opened his eyes to see it. There's a story, I believe it's uh, Lydia, or the first convert in Europe. And the Bible says the Lord opened the eyes of her heart to understand, opened the eyes to believe. In other words, God stepped in and, and turned the lights on, if you like. And I can remember that day sitting on that bed, that same camp bunk bed. And I'd heard the gospel so many times. And I just kept shoving it away. And all of a sudden I heard it again. And the lights went on. And it's like I'd heard it afresh for the first time. I think I told you a story. Paul Washer, uh, preacher in the States, was preaching up in the north of Canada near the, uh, the oil fields. He's preaching gospel message. And he's going at it for a while. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the meeting, in the last night of this gospel campaign, the door opens and this great big burly oil walker comes stomping in with his car hearts and his big boots and his, he's covered in filth and oil. And he stomps down the front and he's, he's been weeping. And he sits in the very front row. And Paul's looking at him. And Paul's not a very big guy. And he's preaching away. And this guy's just glaring up at him. And the, the service gets done. And, and Paul goes down there and very... Sits down beside him, a bit of trepidation. He says, can I help you? And the man looked at me and says, I just got told I got three weeks to live. I don't know God. He said, if you can't help me, there's no help for me at all. And they sat there and Paul said he was supposed to be on a plane in an hour and a half to fly to his next place to preach. And for three long hours, he went over and over and over with him with the gospel. And he just thought, is, is, the guy's just not getting it. He's not seeing it. It's so simple. A child can get it. And he said, you know what? Let's read it one more time, okay? Why don't you read it? And the big guy took the Bible in his hands and he started to read. For God so loved the world. And all of a sudden he stopped and Paul looked over and the tears were flowing down his face. He said, for God so, he looked at Paul, he says, did you see this? Paul says, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. (laughs) And and Paul says, you you get it? God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son. I got it. 
and this great big burly oil worker, he's just crying his eyes out. Why? Because in that third hour, God reached down and opened the eyes of his understanding. And Paul said he stayed around for another week, forgot his next preaching thing, and he went to see the man, and the man had sat down with his family at 4 o'clock in the morning when he finally got home, and he was telling them the gospel. And they had the little church who had the joy of baptizing him and a few weeks later of burying him. But his family came into the church and the story just goes on from there. It's an amazing story of God's grace. It's God who opens the eyes. Brother and sister, you sit down with the word of God. And why is it we pray before we open the word of God? We pray that God will open the eyes of our understanding, open the eyes of our heart. That when he speaks, we hear. It's God working. Peter's statement in verse 32, the spirit of God is a witness to these things. In Matthew eleven twenty-five, 25, Jesus declares, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, like Gamaliel, and you have revealed them to little children. Little kids can get it. Why? Because they're little kids? No, because God opens the eyes of a little child's understanding. It's God who gives sight to the blind. It is God the Holy Spirit who reveals spiritual truths to men and women. In Psalm 146 and verse 7, it is the Lord who sets the prisoners free and the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. In Isaiah 42 verses 6 and 7, the suffering servant of the Lord is to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners and so on. God in the person of Christ came to open the eyes of both the physically and the spiritually blind. In Luke 4, Jesus is quoting Isaiah's prophecy from chapter 42 and 61. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But you know what's amazing? John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. But he also says of his disciples, listen, Matthew 5, 14, you probably already know what I'm going to say. You are the light of the world. It's the very same thing he said about himself. I'm the light of the world. And guess what? All his disciples are the light of the world. It is not us that opens the eyes of the blind. It is God working through us. It's the spirit of God that works when we open our mouths and in trembling voices and lips begin to speak the words of God to a neighbor or a friend. It is God in us, shining through us, that we are the light of the world so that others may see the glory and beauty of Christ and turn toward God. In Acts 26, 16 to 18, Paul testifies that at his conversion, he was appointed as a service, a servant and a witness of Christ to open the Gentiles' eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Why? Because Paul was something special? No, because the Spirit of God was in Paul. And the Spirit of God was working and speaking through Paul to open the eyes of the Gentiles to see. It's God who makes us able to see. It's God who makes us alive. Like we were saying before, by God's doing, we are in Christ. 
So what do we do with this message? A couple of applications I want to make. Brother and sister in Christ, those who know the Lord, let me ask you this. No, let me ask us this. We all need to hear this. Do you see any wicked way in you yet remaining? Ask the Lord to show you, to enable you to see it. The Bible says in the Psalms, Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, is what it means, and know my anxiety, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That isn't just a nice song we sing. We do sing it from time to time. That's a prayer of the psalmist. Brother and sister in Christ, when was the last time that we sat down before the word of God and said, search me, O God? Like a skillful doctor who probes and pokes and points and listens and taps and looks to see. So the great physician of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, searches us and tries us and knows us. And the point of the last line of that psalm, and lead me in the way everlasting, is lead me out of this. Lead me out that I might see with eyes to see. I might see the glory and the beauty of Christ and I might follow him. Sin quickly, subtly finds a way to take root in our lives. And sin begins to blind us from seeing the wonder and the beauty of Christ in the scriptures and in all of life. Watch out, Christian. Walk and live with your eyes fastened on Christ to see his beauty. Because you know what? As we focus on him and fast our eyes on him, the sin that so easily creeps in and settles in and takes root becomes that much more obvious to us. Go to your God on your knees, Christian, and ask God to show you if and where you've begun to depend on your own righteousness as a means to be accepted by God. How many of us do this? Do you see, Lord? Do you, see, do you accept me because I've read much? You know, Lord, I, I memorized ten verses today. Lord, is, you must look at me with more favor. I'm sure God's more pleased with me today because, you know, I read twelve chapters of my Bible. Aren't I spiritual? Don't we do that? I'm sure my whole day is going to go so well because, you know, I spent a full hour in prayer before I got out of bed. I'm telling you, the Lord is going to do good things for me. And that's self-righteousness. We begin to sort of stack up merit points with God and say, you know, God must accept me. God must deal kindly with me because of, I've done this and I've done that and I've thought about this and I've, I've witnessed to her and I've, uh, I've done that. And we make up a list. Watch out, dear Christian friend. Self-righteousness quickly begins to blind us to the infinite and glorious grace of God. If God must accept me because I've been good or better today, that's self-righteousness. How do we open our service? Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than the most defiled, reaching into me, even me. Wonderful grace of God in Christ, and he accepts us because of Christ. Not anything that we have or are doing. Maybe, dear Christian brother or sister, you have a clear conscience before God. Praise God if you do. But you're wondering why a friend, a loved one, a brother, a sister, 
a daughter, a husband, or a wife simply refuses to believe the gospel. Remember, don't lose sight of this fact. It's God who opens the eyes of that man, that person's heart to believe. Cry out to God. Speak the gospel. Don't stop. But cry out to God all the time that God would open his eyes to see it. Because if God does not open his eyes to see it, whatever acknowledgement, whatever move he makes towards it, will quickly fade and die. It will come to nothing. To those who are here this morning who do not know Christ as Savior, have got this application. You've heard the message. I don't think there's any doubt that you know that you're a sinner before God. But your wicked deeds you love. And you want to stay in the darkness because you want to stay away from Christ. Listen very carefully. God in His grace brought you in here today to hear a message. He's calling on you not to be hard-hearted, not to be stubborn, not to refuse His calling to you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Know what it is to be set free. My prayer is that God will open our eyes to see the truth. God will open the eyes of those who do not yet believe to see that they're a great sinner, as are all of us, but also to see that Jesus is a great Savior. Like Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was asked close to his death about his faith, he simply said, I know that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. That's the reality for all of us. So my plea with us all is don't be like Gamaliel, allowing ourselves to become spiritually blind. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, don't let sin take root in your life. Don't let the idea of all the things that you do, the spiritually good, become merits to earn you favor with God. You know, if I run around and memorize 20 verses before I ask God for this thing that I need, because I've memorized 20 verses, you know, God will give me what I need. Oh, that's self-righteousness. You're trying to earn merit and favor with God. It doesn't work. Don't be like Gamaliel. The Pharisees, I find, such a frustration. I'll be honest. So why? Because they had the Word of God. They, memor they memorized more of the Word of God than I've ever memorized. And yet they didn't know God. The great tragedy, brothers and sisters, is we live in a society and a culture, Christian culture, for those of us we're around believers all the time. We're, we're surrounded by Scripture. And the tremendous danger is we will know this and not know the Lord. You say, how is that possible? Look at Gamaliel. He knew the Word of God backwards and forwards, but he didn't know the Lord. It's God that opens the eyes of the heart. It's man that humbles himself. And cries out to God for forgiveness. It's man that humbles his own pride and says, I want Christ because there's nothing I can do to earn my favor, earn favor with God. And God in his grace supplies it through Christ. What an amazing Savior we have. Amen. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for your tremendous grace, your amazing love toward us.
Father, we thank you, each of us that knows the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have opened our eyes to see the glory and the beauty, the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, for this man Gamaliel, as he stood there in front of the Sanhedrin, he had an education that we would be jealous of. He had position. He had honor. He was respected and listened to. And yet in his sinful, blinded heart, he concluded that Jesus was nothing more than a want-to-be Messiah and a revolutionary who had died and his followers would soon be dispersed. Father, we praise you. We give thanks. We would exalt and lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who is alive forevermore. That even though Jesus died, he rose again proving that he had no sin, proving that he is indeed the Son of God. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted to your right hand and he lives and rules and reigns even today. Father, we pray that you would open blind eyes. Father, my heart goes out to some amongst us this morning. Made a profession of faith, begun to walk with the Lord. But self-righteousness and pride and stubbornness has settled in and begun to blind them to the truth of the scriptures. Father, we pray, cry out to you, O God, that you would peel away, peel away that sin. Lord, enable them to see the sin that needs to be confessed and found forgiveness for, needs to be put away and repented of that they might see afresh the glory and the beauty of Christ. Father, we cry out to you for your help and for your blessing. We give you thanks, O God, for a morning of worship. We thank you, O God, that it is by your doing indeed that we are in Christ, that he has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Father, we give you thanks, and we would boast this morning, but only in the name of the Lord Jesus. He indeed is our everything. He is our all in all. Father, we thank you for him. We praise you for him. Father, we pray for those here that don't know you. Lord, you alone can open their eyes. Father, we pray that you would open their eyes and that you would trouble them and torment them till they turn to you in faith and repentance and know what it is to be saved. Open our eyes, O oh God, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.